I have a couple of friends of mine who uh, are pastors in other countries, and sometimes they ask me to pray for them as they're preaching in the morning, and you know, I, uh, on the mornings that I get to do it, they, they do the same for me. And this morning, when I was talking to them, or well, texting them anyway, uh, they, uh, I mentioned where I was preaching from, and they said, Amos doesn't pull any punches. That is an understatement, I think. Last week, I talked about how the gospel, or the gospel of Jesus Christ shows itself in Amos 1 and 2 because it shows how badly we need him. Despite the fact that we imagine that we are holy and that we are righteous, the Lord God knows the actual situation of our hearts. He knows the ways that we think. Those darkest thoughts that you have yeah, I'm sorry, God knows them, every one of them. And he will react as that, as that is important to him. Goodness is important to him. Righteousness is important to him. Today, my, I've got 30 minutes, and I have 30 minutes to take that text you just heard Brother Paul read. And I, here's where I want to go with it. I want to convince you that the judgment of God is good. I mean that in both senses that that can be meant. The judgment of God is good. I mean that God is accurate in the way that he sees the world and the ways that we are. And when he judges things, he judges them well. But I also mean that one God brings down his judgment against our evil. He is doing good. And I know that's not easy to believe. I know that's not going to be uh, something that people will find easy to do. Uh, trust me, I think the text says it pretty clearly. I think we can say this. I think we can be clear that God's judgment is good. And of course, I'll admit, I also have a couple of things going against me here. I live in 21st century Canada, as do most of us. I uh, don't know who's watching online, but hopefully a lot of us are living in similar cultures, so they understand the situation a little bit. Judgment has come on, well, difficult times in our culture, hasn't it? Most of us don't like the term. It's kind of interesting, though, because I was always taught that judgment could be a good thing. I mean, you know, if I decide to spend all my money on lottery tickets, somebody will come to me and say, you're exercising bad judgment, brother. If we're told that we should exercise good judgment when we talk to, when we do our lives, when we live the things in our lives, we're supposed to be wise people. We are supposed to exercise good judgment. And let, yet people will often quote the text, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you not be judged. Imagining that, that you know, there's no such thing as judgment among Christi within Christianity. Except that's the text continues with Matthew 7, 2. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, the thing is, we can't avoid judging. We do it all the time. I, I, I don't want to accuse you of anything, but I'll tell you right now, most of you are judging me and what I'm saying right now, even as I'm saying it. You're coming to conclusions about whether what I'm saying is 
good or bad, whether what I'm saying is correct or incorrect, what it, whether it's found in the text of Scripture in, or not, because I'm hoping all of you have opened your Bibles and you're looking at the text of Scripture so that you'll be able to see it. And I am asking you, begging you, pleading with you to judge whether or not what I say is right. Because it's important to judge. The question is, we need to be correct in our judgment. That's what Matthew chapter 7 is about. That's what I would say Amos chapter 3 is about. We see judgment doing good. We see judgment being good. We see judgment being good, first of all, in that it is accurate, that it understands the world that we're in, the people that we are, and the situation we're in. And because it understands those things, judgment can also be good because then it acts as is best for the situation. Judgment, God's judgment especially, is a good thing. Now, I, I think we're actually correct to have some skepticism about our own judgment. I have to be honest, most of the time, well, I, I know you guys are much smarter and wiser than I am, but I know that a lot of times I've judged stuff, I've made decisions. A lot of times uh, I was kind of dumb. When I was young and stupid, I was young and stupid, and then I just got older. I have a lot of things that I've made decisions about in my life that I've regretted. Things that I, in retrospect, that was foolish. And, and there have been times that I have judged people, even people sitting here in the congregation. I'm sorry. I've done it. I've had negative views of you. I've, 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 thought, of, I've thought negative things about you that I shouldn't have thought. My judgment honestly sucks. I'm not a very good judge sometimes. And because of that, we tend to imagine that God's judgment is similar to my judgment. You know, we, we, uh, the, the old phrase goes, you know, God, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. Well, it's the situation it is. We, we imagine that God is like us, and yet God is not like us. So my desire this morning, as we look through Amos chapter 3, is that we look and see the judgment of God, the goodness of God through his punishment of his people. And in seeing that, see the goodness in judgment so that we won't be afraid to try to have a wise judgment, to judge things correctly, to follow through with what God's, God does, and to judge ourselves correctly and to react accordingly. And, I, and, and you know, before I get to the end, I'm going to just tell you what the end application is here. The end application is going to be we need to judge ourselves correctly so that we can repent, that we can turn away from evil and go for good. So now that I've given you my entire sermon, I'll give you my sermon again. You see, God's judgment is good. That's the first point I want to make, especially on his people. Look at Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That, now that sounds very comforting, very positive, very nice. And yet, here, here, listen to this part. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. 
Now that therefore is important. The reason that God is going to bring punishment on Israel is not because he hates them and he despises them and he hasn't known them and he's opposed to them in every way, shape, and form. It's because he knows them and he chose them. He has loved them for centuries. By this point, what, what, he, remember, he, he says at the beginning here, I brought them, you up out of the land of Egypt. That happened four to five centuries before this. He's, re, he's reminding them that he has held them in his hand for centuries. He has helped them in so many situations. And if you go back to chapter 2, you'll remember that the, the times that he talks about how he has helped Israel in so many times. Now, it's in, a, in the context of negatives there, pointing out the problems that they were having with their own self-righteousness. But note that the God we're talking about here cares and cares deeply for the people he's bringing judgment in. And this judgment, this punishment that he will be placing upon the people of Israel is not in spite of Israel being God's people. It's because Israel is God's people. You remember how the New Testament says at one point, uh, I, I, this is off the top of my head, so I don't memorize texts of Scripture very well. I apologize. But, the text of, but Scripture does tell us that God, well, he disciplines the one he loves. This is true. God here in Amos is disciplining the one he loves. Now, as you've, we've gone through the whole text, the text is not positive. I'll, I'll give you that. But I want, I want us to understand the character of God in this. There's a reason for this. Look at Amos 3.10. Just skip down a few verses. It says, They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Again, he's pointing about the people of Israel. Now, this is partially a statement about just how evil they are. He doesn't even know how to do anything good. But I think it's also accurate. God means it. These people have become so corrupt, so changed in their nature by their long-term embrace of their own sinfulness that they've forgotten how to do good. Um, I hate to add this, there's a, pretty bit, a little aside here uh, for those of us who are Christians. You know, we are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. I'll tell you that right now, that is absolutely true. But brothers and sisters, it becomes harder to fight sin the more you embrace sin. I know the feeling. If you spend your time poo-pooing your own sin and imagining that it's not a big deal, don't be surprised if further on down the road you'll find it harder to fight that sin and other sins. Sin is not merely some, uh, the actions you do. It's a corruption of your soul. That's what's happened to Israel. They've forgotten how to do righteousness. They do not know how to do right. So what is God to do with this? What is God to do with a people who he loves? He has loved for centuries. He's risen them from a, a, a family that he sent down to Egypt and has saved them and 
kept them running for, again, centuries. Yet they've forgotten how to do righteousness. And now they store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. The answer is simple. He cleanses them of the unrighteousness. Just skip down to Amos 3.12. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Now this is a warning. This is clearly a warning about what is going to happen, that this is not going to be easy on you, Israel. This will not this is not going to be a good, easy, simple thing that you're going to be able to face. It'll be costly. It'll be difficult. But some will survive. I will cleanse the evil from them. There's a reason that God is doing this judgment at the time that he does this judgment. It's so that there will be something left of goodness in them. He is not merely causing them, uh, causing them to be punished. He is causing them to be punished in a way that will cleanse them of their evil. He purges the evil from Israel. Not to destroy evil, but to make sure that the people will be again saved. This is similar to our own context as believers. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. It says this, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is built up, burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, though only as through fire. Brothers and sisters, as believers, let's hear the warning that happened to Israel and that Paul repeats here in Corinthians. As we live as believers in the age that we're in, let us be clear and desire to be righteous because God's judgment will come and all that is evil in our life will be purged. Our evil will not, it has no future. Our sin has no future. So let's not actually sow to it. But God's good judgment here has been good. He is accurate. He sees where Israel is. He sees where Israel needs. And he provides what Israel needs in his judgment. Both senses of the word that God's judgment is good. Secondly, God's judgment is consistently accurate. We, we saw this in chapters 1 and 2, didn't we? He, he went through all of the sins everywhere in that part of the world and pointed out with excruciating detail the sins of his people, Israel. But he says it again here, again to look at verses 9 and 10. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her. Samaria being, by the way, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And her oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. They, those who store up robbery in their strongholds. So God is not 
snowed. He is not pretending. He doesn't imagine that the kinds of injustice doesn't happen. Even if the people of Israel pretend it's not there, God knows. And he is accurate about it. He isn't fooled. But also God's good judgment is honest. He doesn't merely leave his people to walk in darkness. He gives clear knowledge of his character and his coming actions. This is where, by the way, we get the, one of the most commonly quoted verses in Amos that is almost always misquoted. It says this, do, not, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from the den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. The lion has roared and who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? But can, who can but prophesy? I apologize. You see, God tells us about the future. He tells us about the situations we face. He tells us about ourselves. And this is one of the uncomfortable things that happens when you read Bibles. And this is why I think so many of us as Christians have trouble reading our Bibles and spending the time to, you know, think about it and deal with it because it accurately tells us about the character of God. It's a mirror that, that, that shows us who we are. And that's not always comfortable. I mean, I, mean I, I would like to believe I am the handsome, amazing man standing before you that you all see instead of the person I know I am when I go home. I want to imagine that I am the perfect person I put out to you instead of the person that needs the grace and mercy of God every minute of every hour of every day. The second one, by the way, is the more honest me. Um, you know, I, I know I'm very handsome, but that doesn't mean that I'm righteous. And in the time of Amos, he speaks by prophets. But as Hebrews 1 tells us, as Hebrews begins, we're now spoken to by Christ. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the days we're in, he has spoken to his us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. And we have the record of this. This is why we open our Bibles on Sunday mornings. It's why we spend time reading it. It's why, if you're, if you're smart, you spend some time memorizing it. It's because it shows us what God is saying. Because God tells us about his judgment. He tells us what's coming. He tells us the truth of our situations and of his reaction to these situations. But God's good judgment is not merely accurate. It is not merely good. It's not merely honest. God's judgment is effective. God is clear that his judgment will do what he purposes for it. Now, 
we're happy to say it when it comes to the fact that God rules all things. God reigns over all things. God runs this universe. There is not a molecule in the entirety of creation that can rebel against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which makes it really, really weird that he's actually countenanced these rebel humans for so long. But he rules the universe. But that also means that the suffering that enters into our lives, sometimes by, well, always by the hand of God at some level, as God loves us, as God has chosen us, as God has saved us, all of our suffering has a purpose. I've heard people talk to me about the, uh, the, 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 the evils of the world that have no purpose. And I've had to think about it a lot. I've had to do philosophical imaginings on this. They don't exist. There is no such thing as meaningless suffering. It doesn't exist. God purposes things for the suffering he brings about. Even the suffering that is punishment for our wickedness. Even the suffering that is a result of our bad decisions. What you intend for evil, God intends for good. What your enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. What your own sin intended for evil, God will use for good. Judgment comes, but it is effective. And he will bring it to pass, not because he hates us, not because he's merely angry with us, but because he redeems. And and when we say that flippantly so so often, I mean it. He will move all things ultimately to his glory and his people's good. As much pain as that may take, as much difficulty as that may face, as much problems as we're dealing with, not only is it worth it, it will come to pass as he desires it. It's a bad thing to hear about here in in chapter 3, verse 12 to 15. The Lord says, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, Uh, Two legs or a piece of an ear. Kind of not very, kind of a gruesome image there. So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. By the way, the, 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 altar at Bethel, just in case you're wondering, that's the fake altar that they had to try and pretend that they had some connection to God while they didn't. And God will cut it off. Now, that, we, we think that that's a negative thing, that's a, that's a punishment thing, that's a problem thing, but think a little bit more clearly about that. That means he isn't going to allow false religion to stand between him and his people. 
There will come a day when the false religion will have to step down and bow its knee to God. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. You know how riches sometimes keep us from God? Be careful of that. Be careful of making the riches uh, a way that keep you from God. God has a very clear way of getting rid of idols. So if you want to keep, if you want to keep that, begin to use it right. <laughs> because God will stop it. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. And that sounds really bad unless you realize that God is saying, I will not countenance anything that keeps my, my people away from me. There will come a day when there will be nothing left between me and my people, says the Lord. And I will make it clear. And yes, when it comes to the things that have accepted evil, when it comes to the people who desire to, to rebel against God, yes, that means they too will be punished and removed. Punishment is real. But it is good. And it will do what it's purposed for. You see, the ultimate thing that we have to remember from this text is that eventually, all evil will be defeated. It's a common trope among uh, ethical philosophers to imagine that because there is evil in the world, there can't actually be a good and loving God. They have forgotten one facet. This story is not over yet. We are not at the end of, of, of reality and there will come a day, there will come a day when there will be no more evil. There is an expiry date on all the evil in the world, on all the suffering in the world, on all the negatives in the world. There will come a day when it is no longer here. The same God who is so faithful that scientists can actually map the world around us because of the constancy of the rules by which the world runs. The God who holds that up, he is so faithful, so faithful that nuclear forces stay in perfect harmony to allow for the universe to continue to exist as it is. He is so faithful that tomorrow morning, the sun's probably going to rise. I say probably because there will come a day when God will say, okay, it's time. And the world that we know now will be completely changed. And this new world will have no evil in it. But that means that we have a choice to make. God's good judgment is coming. It was coming for Amos. It was coming for the people of Israel in Amos' time. It is coming for us. I don't like quoting Revelation because as an Amil guy, people ask me lots of questions about Revelation. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that Revelation is pretty clear about. Revelation 22, 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the call here is easy. The, the idea we should be grabbing from this text is simple. Since we are evil and can often be 
ignorant of our evil. That's what we talked about last week. You can go back and check the sermon out about last week. The call is clear. Throw ourselves on the mercy of God because he is merciful. Do we, have, do we know of some evil in our lives? Do we know of the way, some of the ways in which we rebel against God, the things that we are building up right now, even right now, that are things that God is going to have to tear down at his return? Well, this is time to repent. That's a big snazzy word for stop doing it and turn to Jesus. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Join God in his work of sanctifying us and making us holy. Submit to him and obey him even when it's difficult. And and I say that with some trepidation because I know the sin in my own life. I really do. I know things in my life that I need to repent of and I need to make war on. And brothers and sisters, we need to make war on that stuff. Because it has no future. And God is good and he is willing to work on it. He's willing to work through it and he will work through it. Let's not fight him on it. Let's simply turn to him and accept him and let him do the work he needs to do on our lives. Let's be faithful to just simply turn to him. Remember what it says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And I keep quoting this because it's important. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 